Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the week ending Friday the 10th of November. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. Calls for the Home Secretary to be sacked after she went on the attack against the Metropolitan Police. This article had not been cleared by Number 10. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected calls for a humanitarian pause. He insists there won't be a temporary ceasefire in Gaza unless Hamas frees all hostages. After 118 days and in to the Hollywood strike, SAG-AFTRA reached a tentative deal with the studios. I'm joined by the Tortoise News Editor, Jess Winch. Jess, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Jeevan Vassagor, who's our Climate Editor. Hi, James. Very good to have you. Thanks, Jeevan. And also by James O'Brien. No stranger to the mic or having a view on the news. <laughs> True. James, very good to have you here. Thank you for having um, me. Your latest book, How They Broke Britain, is just out and you're doing the rounds. I am. Exhausting? Uh, yes, but there's, you know, worse things to be exhausted by. Um, the they. Yes. You did just 10 people... Did you find yourself along the way thinking, oh, God, actually, I should do 20 or I should just do five? No, actually. They, they, they presented themselves fairly clearly and fairly obviously and very quickly. Once I'd identified the sort of three engines that I think are, are most responsible for creating the ecosystem in which all the really crazy stuff can and has happened, it, it, was, it was actually they, they sort of dropped out the bottom of my ponderings quite, quite quickly because their causes rather than symptoms. So if it was symptoms, it would be a much longer list. The three engines being? Being the right-wing media, the current iteration of the Conservative Party, and the uh, sort of incestuous network of lobby groups, secretly funded lobby groups masquerading as think tanks. I suspect we're going to get into that because there's some news this week that touches on all all three of those things. There always is. (laughs) Let's get at that. We'll go long story short. If you would, James, what's the story you want to talk about? I, I thought we'd talk about uh, Suella Braverman's latest aberration from Common Decency, but we've been in this room for four minutes, so I may not be up to date with the latest aberration from Common Decency. So one of the one of the joys of podcasting, is, of course, is that you can spend time, think things through. Mm. One of the worries of it is that by the time you finish thinking things through, the world's changed. Yes. So just so anyone listening knows, we are recording this on Thursday afternoon. We're sitting here wondering whether by the time you're <laughs> listening to it, Rishi Sunak will have engineered Suella Braverman's exit from the Home Office. Um, but that's where we are. So let's talk on that basis. Jess, what's your long story short? I want to talk about the local elections in America and why they matter for 2024. Oh, yeah. Polls and polls. It's polls been a week. and elections, polls and votes. Treven? I'm pitching Shell Sue's Greenpeace. I mean, that is the most extraordinary story, isn't it? Even saying those words is odd, isn't it? Yeah, it's you're worse. by its dog. Completely. Let's come to those. Well, let's do those in order then, James. The Home Secretary, you're not talking tents and homelessness. You're talking... Police protest, police and protest. Well, my notebook would have tents and hopelessness written in it, but that, as you point out, has has been superseded by her comments about hate marches and then subsequently her incredible foray into trying to 
draw comparisons or conflate uh, marches in Northern Ireland with what she's described as hate marches here. It's, it's, I mean, it's obvious to suggest that she seems to be angling to get fired by Rishi Sunak. But if you, if you park that thought for the moment, it's almost impossible to unravel what must be going on in her mind. It's as if she wakes up every morning and, and thinks target rather than idea. So I, I think this typifies tabloid journalism in general, where it's designed to solicit, elicit the, the biggest emotional reaction, regardless of the fact. So we all know that. But it's odd to see it happening at cabinet level. So she's picked a target, whether it's rough sleepers, and then she attacks them. There's no pretense of trying to solve a solution. And now with the marches, people marching for a ceasefire or marching in solidarity with Palestinian people and in the massive, massive majority, not marching in any way to, to show support for Hamas. But that's how she's chosen to typify them for reasons that presumably only she could explain. There, there are many levels of madness with this. One of them is the extent to which I think the UK media has got itself into talking about itself and the UK, mm. given how generally powerlessness the UK is, powerless the UK is to deal with what's happening in Gaza itself. So before we get into the words that Suella Brovman's used, Jess, do you want to just update us on where we are at the end of this week on what's actually happening? Israel, Hamas, the situation in Gaza, Tony Blinken and the US relationship with Israel itself. Sure. So yeah, those are the two two areas really to catch up on this week. One is the situation on the ground, which is that the fighting now in northern Gaza, and particularly in Gaza City, has become very intense. Um, Israeli troops moving through uh, sort of street by street. They said on Thursday that they took over a Hamas stronghold in northern Gaza. That was after a 10-hour long battle. And thousands, tens of thousands more people are now fleeing the north of Gaza down south. Uh, Israel said that on Wednesday, around 50,000 people made that journey. And this is to the southern area of Gaza, which is already full to bursting. The World Health Organization has warned that the Gaza Strip is facing a rapid spread of infectious diseases. They've said that diarrhea, chickenpox, scabies and other infections are already rampant through the population. They've warned that that's going to get worse. We've also got a better picture now of just how bad the destruction has been in northern Gaza as a result of the Israeli airstrikes. The New York Times reported earlier this week that an analysis of satellite imagery had shown that around a third of all buildings in northern Gaza are now damaged or destroyed. A number of journalists have been allowed in with Israeli troops so they can see the see the level of destruction there, and that's been described as a wasteland. And the current death toll is around 10,500 residents in Gaza, around 40% of them children. On a political level, as you say, the... There's been an interesting pushback this week from the US after Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, gave an interview suggesting that Israel would have overall security responsibility of the Gaza Strip for an indefinite period, which some of his officials have since tried to pull back from slightly. Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, has made it very clear that the US doesn't support that. He said that it's clear that Israel cannot occupy Gaza. James Cleverly, the UK foreign secretary, while he was in Japan at the G7, similarly backed what the US was suggesting in that there can be no long-term Israeli occupation of Gaza. And that's still being worked through because ultimately no one knows what the longer-term situation in Gaza is going to look like. After this war, what happens next? How is it managed? And no one's come up with a clear answer to that yet. Yeah, Blinken has been so impressive in all of this, hasn't he? I, mean, I think so. Can't help wondering or wishing why he wouldn't run for president in 2024, but maybe we'll, we'll come, come back to that. to that in a second. James, let's just go back then to the Suella Braverman. It start, it's, a, it's an op-ed piece or a commentary piece in The Times today, and there were three, there were three elements to it. 
that that I think made people concerned. One is her insistence on calling people who are marching in support of Palestinians hate marchers. Mm. The second was this suggestion, or more than a suggestion, that the police operate to a double standard, i.e. they police marches again that are anti-lockdown more fiercely than Black Lives Matter. And the third was a comparison with marching in Northern Ireland. And I just wonder, from your point of view, which of those three things bothered you the most and why? Cool. Crikey. I don't think I can put them into ranking order because the answer to the why of it is, is going to be so different in each case. I, I, I suspect in terms of the state of the nation, it's the uh, attack on the police that's that's most troubling in in the the sort of context of culture war for want of a better phrase it would be the deployment of language like hate marcher and refusal to bend refusal to bow which of course is if she has a trademark that would be it most obviously when Joan Salter, a Holocaust survivor, asked her to moderate the language she used when speaking about refugees because it reminded Joan Salter of the language the Nazis used before they murdered her family. And Suella Braverman just said no. Um, and then on, on the, the Irish thing is, is probably the most relevant to Suella Braverman as opposed to the broader issues because it's just an illustration of how dangerously ignorant she is and how unconcerned she is about pouring petrol on what are now, thankfully, dying embers. But, um, but of course, they're still embers. So I, I'd, I'd pick the police angle as being the most troubling because the Home Secretary's job is to keep the peace. <laughs> Jeevan, does the Prime Minister sack a Home Secretary for this or just have her in and talk it over? That's a really interesting question, James. I mean, I think... There seems to be a, a sort of drip, drip of humiliation for Rishi Sunak over this. Doesn't she? She's obviously kind of not towing the line, not respecting him. And I, I think there probably comes a sort of John Major point where you feel like you have to make a show of strength by by sacking, what was John Major's phrase? The bastards. Yeah. Um, and in fact, when it happens, it doesn't make you feel look stronger. It can make you look weaker. There are two things I find really interesting about this in, 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 in your summation and James's. I think one of them is um, the Met. So if you think about the vigil for Sarah Everard or the coronation of King Charles, these aren't guys that we think of as, you know, on the good side in terms of policing protest. And yet they find themselves sort of somehow emerging well from this story as opposed to Cyril Braverman. But the sort of deeper point is one about the sort of intellectual current on the right at the moment, where it seems like the right used to talk about freedom and opportunity um, and the marketplace of ideas. And now they're talking about shutting things down and banning protests and restricting freedoms. And you just wonder what's going on and whether this creates an opportunity for politicians on the left who, who are more interested in freedom. There's also an interesting thing, which is that you're seeing essentially institutions defending what are in effect constitutional rights and politicians threatening them. Mm -hmm. And it's often the case, or when I grew up, I thought it was the case that it was the other way around. Politicians articulated the value of those civil rights, constitutional rights. I don't know whether anyone read the Jeff Goldberg profile of Mark Milley, the Joint Chief of Staff in the States just thinking through what the job is of someone who commands the army when the president of the United States acts in a way that is, you know, unreliable. It's interesting, Mark Rowley ends up being the person who has to defend the right of freedom of assembly, freedom of protest. Mm. Makes us lucky that we don't elect our chiefs of police, doesn't it, really? And I mean, albeit that they're appointed, he's, he's taken a stand, uh, I think. And Previous chief constables may not have done, previous commissioners may not have done. To your point earlier, James, about that intersection of kind of right-wing media and the state of the Conservative Party, the thing that I genuinely don't understand about 
the positioning of Suella Bravman is that it feels as though, although there may be an intensity of feeling around, if you like, anti-vax, anti-lockdown, a, a kind of community of protesters who feel marginalized by the kind of quote-unquote mainstream media, there's a ceiling on that constituency. They're not that many people and probably not enough people even to carry you to the leadership of the Conservative Party. So I don't understand the calculation. I don't. Well, I don't either, which isn't an entirely helpful answer, James. But it's the same calculation that GB News are making, isn't it? Is that they're appealing to almost exactly the same constituency. I take it back a little further as, as, um, as a radio phone-in host who, who, who has spent most of the last two decades trying to turn around the oil tanker of radio phone-in territory and topic. And an awful lot of what this government has come out with seems to me to be designed to appeal to very angry people that used to phone radio stations. As you say, it's a sort of 15 to 20 percent rump of people who would fit into any of the categories that she seems to be wooing. So presumably the calculation on her part is that that would be disproportionately represented in the membership of the Conservative Party, if if and when they come to choose the next leader of the party. Uh, and just on that, as a sort of one-man thermometer of anger in the country, how hot is it? It's not as hot as they hoped. You you, you, you know, it's, it's not a scientific measure, but the <laughs> switchboard on other programmes today designed to whip people up into righteous indignation about a non-existent threat to poppy sellers did not light up. That, I mean, there are always people prepared to complain. But when people like t- uh, Tommy Robinson or Stephen Yaxley-Lennon and others start deliberately calling people to turn up at the Cenotaph on Saturday, then then it doesn't matter how much anger there is broadly, because if there's enough anger concentrated in that tiny space, then things will get very ugly indeed. And, and the most depressing thing this week is probably the fact that Suella Bravman must both be aware of that and, if not conscious of it, then even perhaps desirous. Yeah, that. Well, no, it's it's a, it's a calculation. It's a bet, right, isn't it? I can't see an alternative interpretation. Let's go from this to the U.S. I said polls and polls, Jess, because at the beginning of the week there was that New York Times poll, yes. and then there was an actual vote. Yes, Joe Biden's week started really badly, and this was on a day where. Donald Trump was appearing in court as a witness in a civil fraud trial. And it was Joe Biden that seemed to start the the office. (laughs) Exactly. So he he, he came up, woke up to a a New York Times Siena College poll over the weekend, which showed that Donald Trump, the man who looks as though he's very much going to be the Republican nominee for next year's presidential election, is ahead in five out of six key swing states uh, by a margin at least of four percentage points. The only swing state where Biden was ahead was Wisconsin, and that was only by about 2%. And then when you dug down into the numbers, it didn't get any better for Biden because it showed that he was losing support among the young. He was losing support among non-white voters. He was losing against Trump on the big issues as well. Voters said that they would prefer Trump to Biden uh, to manage immigration, to manage national security, to manage the Israel-Hamas conflict. Even he, um, Trump was up about 11 points. And on the economy, Trump was way ahead. And that was among almost every demographic, almost every level of uh, educated voter. So the numbers were, were terrible. And you could tell that they sent a real shockwave even. They, they really worried the Democrats to a degree that you haven't really seen before. David Axelrod, a former Obama strategist, sort of suggested on Twitter that if Biden runs again, would that be sort of about him or about the country? Although he's since said that he was not suggesting that Biden should stand aside. That's how it was interpreted. 
And then within about 36 hours, voters went to the polls on Tuesday in lots of local elections. This was, you know, a year out from next year's November presidential elections. And the Democrats had an amazing night. And it was unbelievable. They, Andy Bashar, who's a Democrat governor, was re-elected in Kentucky. Ohio passed uh, a constitutional amendment that enshrined abortion rights in that state. They also legalized marijuana. But Democrats also, they managed to capture both uh, the the complete state legislature in Virginia. They were competitive in Mississippi. They elected a Democratic judge to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And Joe Biden's team was ecstatic. You know, it was finally, it was a day after a lot of bad days, I think, a lot of hard days where they could send each other memes and they could have a joke and they could enjoy that moment. (laughs) But but I know that lots of people have jumped to the conclusion that there's a difference between what people say in polls and say polls. Yes. But is there a different read on it, which is that very simply, Biden is much less popular than his party? That's exactly the read on it, I think. What I'm taking away from this week is uh, two things. One is that I think as previously suspected and now very much confirmed that abortion rights are going to be a big factor in next year's elections. And two, it seems to me that the biggest problem facing both main parties is their candidate for nominee. It seems that Democrats don't have a problem. People care about issues that matter to Democrats. They care about abortion rights. They care about a lot of other liberal topics and they care about turning out to vote for their party. That doesn't mean they think Biden is the best person to lead them into the, to next year's elections. Those two, those two things can both be mm-hmm. true. Uh, and at the same time, I think Donald Trump is the biggest liability for Republicans because at the moment he's the out and front runner to be the party's nominee. And yet he's facing 91 felony counts. And the Siena New York Times pot, I know you're just saying that, you have to laugh, in four different four different jurisdictions. And if he is convicted on any of those counts, then the poll also suggested that that would have, that would make a significant shift to voters' opinions of him. And that might then lead to a changing opinion, perhaps among Republican voters. James, I know you're not a huge Donald Trump fan. Can I One question, though, about the legal process and the legitimacy of American democracy as an example of democracy to the world. In the event that Trump, in effect, gets the nomination of his party, registered Republicans vote, choose Donald Trump, they want to see their candidate go up against a Democrat. And then in one case or another, he's convicted. It rules him out of running or even imprisoned. It's unclear. It's unclear. Okay. It's unclear whether he's ruled out, whether the party throws him out, or if he's imprisoned, he's definitely out. Mm. But my point is really about a democratic process, not constitutional process, emotional process, where the world looks on and goes, the courts have thwarted the democratic rights of the people to be heard. Where do you come out on that? It's tricky, isn't it? I, I, I think sometimes we it, it, it's one of the simplest words and concepts in the world democracy, but but it's also quite complicated because, you know, you can't vote untruths into truth. If there was, you know, Galileo would explain this better than me, but it doesn't matter how many people believe something to be true. It doesn't make it true. So for 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 a legal framework to determine that somebody is not allowed to run for president doesn't actually directly dilute or uh, or dismantle democracy in any way. But as we saw on January the 6th, it's, it's not going to be about logical breaking down of fact. It, it's it's going to be about how big the sugar rush is to the 
to the to, to the heart of the base, to the heart of the supporters, and they will c- categorically believe that they've been robbed again, or that they've been denied justice, or denied their democratic representation. I, I guess I ask this because I think a very conservative lens on your book would, or or on the way in which you talk, would say that intersection that you describe of the media, the party, the think tank, and the lobbying world is what some people call the deep state. It's a different lens on the same thing. It's the way in which the establishment power really operates and the kind of collusive nature of that power. People might look who are Republicans and say, James, what we're seeing in the United States is the state thwarting the people. Yeah, except that what I describe is in plain sight, whereas the whole point of the deep state is that it's operating in the shadows and, and, and therefore it's rather hard to prove its existence you know as with the new elites or the woke mob or whatever it is this week that the bogus victimhood is directing its its uh, invented grievances at it's not though is it i mean it, it is there's a constitution for a reason it's written for a reason it's memorized by school children in america for a reason the fact that it wasn't conceived to cope with the threats posed by somebody like Donald Trump doesn't doesn't dilute its importance. I don't have the American experience. I haven't worked there. I don't know it well enough to know how fragile those sort of commitments are. You know, we've always thought on this side of the Atlantic that they hold these things very dear. That that perception has obviously been a little bit idealistic. But I don't I don't think that you can portray things happening according to codified law as being part of a secret conspiracy. Well I mean, you can try, but I don't know that it would get as much traction as as, as it might. But but can you just explain, you've got this extended metaphor in the book about ghost trains and speak your weight machines. Yes, I do. Yeah. And uh, when I, will you just explain it and then also explain whether and why you think democracy is has become more susceptible to fear than fact? Well, yeah, so you've answered the first question a bit with the, with the second one. It's the idea that a <clears throat> an exciting, uh, a frisson of fear will have us queuing around the block for, for, for the ghost train, whereas the speak your weight machine is something that you only really consult under medical <laughs> under medical <laughs> instruction. As you know, there's never a queue for the speak your weight machine. So, so dull facts have been completely destroyed by exciting falsehoods, or if you want to keep it American, you'd call them alternative facts. Uh, I suspect it's got a lot to do with complacency and comfort. I I suspect that the threats that would have animated our ancestors, our our, our predecessors, were were a lot more real. The fear of genuine poverty, the fear of hunger, the fear of um, insecurity, the, the, the illness, you know, it's still all relatively recent, these progresses, these advances that, that provide most of us, of course, with the, 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 the illusion of permanent security. And under the illusion of permanent security, I, I wonder whether there's a sort of atavistic urge to look around for things to be frightened of. And, and don't forget that if, if someone appeared at the door of this room now and shouted fire, if two of us ran for the front and two of us stayed here, none of us are stupid. You know, until you establish whether or not there's a fire or not. And then you'll work out who was right and who was wrong. But at no point are we stupid unless we know there isn't a fire and we uh, provoke the stampede and then and then people get hurt in the stampede. So I, I'm fond of these sort of analogies because they're a lot easier to process than the actual reality of modern <laughs> politics. Happily, we're going to have a year to come back to US politics. Let's <laughs> take a beat and then let's go to climate. 
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Jeevan, the underdog shell taking on that giant Greenpeace. (laughs) What's going on? Yeah, so the um, the poor, fragile David of the oil and gas world. Um, so, yeah, it is a strange thing to say. You kind of imagine that you want to say Greenpeace is suing Shell, but we're not. So what's happened is that a group of Greenpeace activists boarded a ship that was chartered by Shell that was sailing one of their floating platforms to the North Sea from China. And Shell is now suing Greenpeace for $2 million um, and asking that they desist from future protests. So so my pitch is, uh, is not that companies don't have a right to sue for damages if there are protests that are deemed to be unlawful. Obviously, they do. My pitch is that it's an enormous number. It's $2 million. And I think this is interesting because um, Shell's annual profit last year, it's worth saying, was $40 billion. Um, Greenpeace UK's annual income is £32 million. So, you know, there are huge differences in these organisations. But also the amount of money that Shell made last year makes you ask the question, what is this about? You know, they don't need the money. Can I just get something right? Surely Shell is within its rights to say Greenpeace can protest, but not either in breach of the law or with threats to safety, reasonable point. And two, isn't the two million actually not a punitive sum? Isn't it probably in Shell's mind a token sum knowing that the judge, if they actually get uh, a judgment on their side, will end up probably saying something that is somewhere between a dollar and two million? It doesn't necessarily land exactly what they, with what they're asking for. I think you're absolutely right about the sum, uh, James. I think what's critical here is the question of the right to protest. Now, Shell, in their defence, do say they support the right to lawful protest, and they make the point that you make that there is a risk. There was a risk to the activists themselves of what they did. There's a risk to the sailors on the ship. That, that's a reasonable argument. Um, I think you know part of what you might say in response, or part of what you might argue in response, is that we're faced with an urgent climate crisis. This year's probably going to be the hottest on record. So there is perhaps a need for, for urgent direct action. That I, I'm not coming down with a view on this. What The reason I'm saying this is, is that that's why I think it's interesting. That's why I think it's a story, because you can see it from both points of view. And the other part of this, the other sort of business context here, is that we have a really hard-headed new leadership at Shell under its CEO, Whale someone who is committed to fossil fuels, going to keep on producing fossil fuels, because he says that's the world that we're in. Yeah, he, his argument is also that there's a global justice point, isn't there, to being able to make sure that people across the planet have access to energy. That's very nice of you, James. It is nice of me, but I think the point is you've got to... Well, I'm not actually... Sorry, I'm not trying to be nice. I'm actually trying to say, how do you, thinking about climate, but also thinking about justice, answer his point, which is not just, I suppose, rubbing your hands in glee, let's make some more money from fossil fuels, make an argument that people around the world have the rights to energy that we have. 
I think it's absolutely right to say that getting Asia off coal, if there is one magic bullet to dealing with climate change, getting Asia off coal is the answer. Supplying Asia with more coal, more fossil fuels probably isn't, isn't the answer. <laughs> <to that>. <laughs> <laughs> what, James, what do you think on the protest point? I, I, it feels like a pincer movement, doesn't it? It feels as if politicians and big business are, are, are convening on the same pressure point in trying to shut down protests where adjectives have never been more important because you could just say effective you don't have to say violent or dangerous. These are the protests that get the coverage. You know, if you're not bringing traffic to a standstill or getting very far up the nostrils of Shell, then you're not actually making the impact that you need to make to, in your mind, get your message in front of more people. Jess, do you find this story interesting or is it slightly, you know, you know, you kind of know which side you're on with this story and probably doesn't make any difference getting into the weeds of it? No, I think it is interesting for the number. I don't think anyone's surprised that I think Greenpeace has probably faced a lot of legal challenges over the year, but the number does seem to make this interesting. And I was curious as to your point about Just Stop Oil, actually how this impacts Greenpeace from a reputational point of view. Does this actually help it Mm. kind of reclaim ground, as it were, in this kind of taking the fight to big oil that has been sort of slightly, it feels like it's been slightly sidelined recently by the more um, Just Stop Oil type protests. And I don't know if this will help sort of reclaim ground. Or if it even needs to. Do you think that was part of their motivation, do you think? I think that's a really good question. I think yes. it's really interesting. I mean, Greenpeace was founded in nineteen seventy one, so they're the you know, they're the, the grand sort of, old man of it, exactly, exactly. protest. Yeah. All right. Let's try and give a running order to this uh, week's stories, not least given that this week's running order might well end up being next week's <laughs> running order, given we're gonna get the Rwanda ruling on Suella Braverman's yeah. plans in the middle of next week. Yeah. Um James, the way this works is you're not allowed to pitch your own story to Fine. lead the news. Okay. But can I just ask you one question before we get there? On your show, do you have any say in the running order of the news bulletin at the top of the hour? That's a brilliant question. Uh that only a journalist would ask. No, not Officially or explicitly, but the newsreaders are brilliant and they will reflect often what we've chosen to talk about on the program in in the bulletin. But remember, the biggest stories in terms of assembling a front page or or, or a news list are not necessarily the things that are going to be most engaging for for an audience, the things that are going to be most interesting to talk about. But if you have a view which is, this is a ridiculous story, I can't believe it's dominating the news. Yeah. Can you go and say, please, let's not lead on that? (laughs) Well, unfortunately, if I think a story is completely ridiculous and shouldn't be dominating the news, there's a very real chance that the breakfast presenter has just spent three hours describing it as the single most important story currently facing humanity. So the newsreaders are charged, particularly at the 10 o'clock handover. The newsreaders walk a very, very fine line, and and I'm happy to leave them to it, partly for that reason. Well, we we need a world where there is greater understanding, so maybe that world's important. All right, James, if if you weren't leading on Swella Brothman, what would you lead on between climate and the US? I think I'd go to America uh, only because it's newsier as, as opposed to just the latest um, chapter in a, in, a, in a long running saga. I mean, the stakes are obviously higher when you're talking about the environment broadly, but not when you're talking about who's going to be in the White House in in 18 months time. And, and uh, I mean, there's a lot going on, the disconnect between Biden and the Democratic Party as a whole. I read somewhere that there might be a problem with polling because uh, American pollsters still rely very heavily on landlines. Yeah. So if you if you've got a landline, let alone if you answer it, then you're more likely to be in a certain demographic than than you are if you don't. So I, I just I just find anything that throws real sort of throws up real apparent contradiction and apparent sort of um, wrestling space is is interesting to me. And when the stakes are as high as they are in America, then it, it, it's pretty clear. Jess. 
I see Suella Braverman as the latest chapter in a long-running saga. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think on <laughs> so that... So it leads or it doesn't No, so it doesn't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go for the climate over the Conservatives. Jeevan? I'm really interested in the Suella Braverman story because of what it tells us about where the right is headed in the UK. But I think if we're thinking about what's consequential, I think a Trump win is going to be the most consequential event if that happens of the next year. So that's why I think I picked the US for that reason. All right, well, I would go for climate US Braverman, Braverman leads. And the reason that climate, I think, is on the running order but comes in third is because I actually think it's a piece of positioning by both the company and the uh, campaign group. I think the US is interesting in one way that it does establish one fact and amongst all the polling, it does establish the fact that you mentioned, Jess, which is that the repeal of Roe v. Wade, abortion rights, are a solid factor in the 2024 election and they're not you know, fading. The odd thing, James, about the Braverman story is that I've spent most of the last week, possibly the last couple of weeks, shouting at either the radio or the TV saying, can we stop obsessing about the political repercussions of what's happening in Gaza Mm. at home? These things don't matter, except now they do. This does matter because it does matter the relationship between the Home Secretary and the police. I'm sure if I was living in Belfast, I'd say, and it really matters the way in which we talk about Northern Ireland. And I'm sure that if I was part of one of the groups that was marching on Saturday, I'd say, I don't like being painted as a hate marcher. But just in terms of the responsibility of the Home Secretary to respect and support the work of the police, it feels like it's some she's crossed a line and I find it hard to believe that the Prime Minister isn't in one form or other going to have to move her on mm. or, in fact, move her out. So I would lead with Suella Braverman for that reason. But with that, Jeevan, thank you very much. Thanks, James. <laughs> Even though I <laughs> kind of sort of relegated the climate story, I know it's the existential crisis of our time. Nonetheless, <laughs> thank you, Jeevan. Uh, Jess, Third place. <laughs> Third place for the existential <laughs> crisis of our time. <laughs> Jess, thank you very much for being here. And James, a big thank you to you. You know, if you're listening and you want to hear more of the way in which James sees our media, our politics, and the intersection of those two things in the world of think tanks and lobbying, we're going to have a separate conversation to go into those things in some depth. Please uh, tune in for that. As ever, you probably think, well, that's quite interesting. You may have got the call wrong. You may have got the call wrong on the running order, even the stories we've chosen. If so, just drop us a line or send us in a voicemail, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And I'm going to leave you, though, with something from one other element of the U.S., Uh, presidential election, the Republican debate, the latest Republican debate, again, one in which Donald Trump didn't show up. But there was a, well, not just one, there were a few really quite meaty exchanges between uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley now emerging as the alternative. Take a listen to this.
Totes. Hello, Tortoise listener. Are you on top of the news or is it on top of you? Don't worry, we've got the solution. Paper Cuts is the fast, funny daily podcast where we look at the wonder and weirdness of the British press. I'm Miranda Sawyer and every weekday I'm joined by top comedians and smart journalists for a roller coaster ride through the daily papers. Tune in and we'll bring you the biggest, the weirdest and the most entertaining stories of the day in one handy half-hour package. That's Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Subscribe on your favourite app.